Let's hear the word of the Lord together. A reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 11, starting with verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of, no- of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The the, the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. And the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from the letter to the Romans, chapter 15, starting with verse 4. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Jesus Christ had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again it says, Rejoice you Gentiles with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations, and him the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. John the Baptist appeared preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was of him that the prophet Isaiah had spoken when he said, A voice of one crying out in the desert, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. John wore clothing made of camel's hair and had a leather belt around his waist. 
His food was locusts and wild honey. At that time, Jerusalem, all Judea, and the whole region around the Jordan were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they acknowledged their sins. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce good fruit as evidence of your repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God can raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Even now, the axe lies at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I am baptizing you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is mightier than I. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand. He will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into his barn, but the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. The Gospel of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. So today marks the second Sunday of Advent, this season of anticipation and longing. We do a few things during this season. So we look back and we join with the people of Israel and their longing for a Messiah the hopes and fears of all the years of humanity. We uh, step into this longing for Christ's first coming into our world. This is often called the Adventus Redemptionus. So we long for that first coming. We step into that reality of Christ's first coming into our world. But then also in Advent, we are reminded of God's presence with us right now, that we anticipate what God wants to do in our lives now. And Sam talked a little bit about that earlier but how we live into his presence in word and in sacrament, how our lives change because of that. That's often called Adventus Sanctificationists. And then finally, we look forward to the day of Christ's second coming, when he will return in glory to judge the living and the dead, and all will be made right. This is something Christians affirm, and it feels opaque at times. It feels difficult to affirm, but it is part of our faith and our confession. It's often called the Adventus Glorificamus. Now, notice that when you come to church here, we're not quick to jump to the Christmas story, right? Like often when we think about December, we think, well, yeah, let's talk about the, the shepherds and the magi and the manger and the holy family. But then you come to a church like this one and you go, why do we get so much like prophets proclaiming doom and John the Baptist saying brood of vipers? Like that doesn't seem to fit with the Christmas story. What is going on? Well, indeed, in this season, historically, Advent has been a season of judgment, of revealing, and of promise, but also of warning. We have the opportunity as a church to push back on some of the consumerism of this season by embracing Christmas traditions a bit more slowly. Now, I, there's lots of fights over people who are purists about this say, don't even put up your Christmas lights until Christmas Eve because Advent, you want to do all this. Uh, let's let people enjoy their things, right? Let's have fun. <laughs> it's fine. Um, but, but there is this sense of we could kind of embrace this season a bit more slowly, allow it to unfold like a flower before we get to Christmas. Advent is not flashbang. Advent is one candle at a time. So before we celebrate, we anticipate. The prophet Isaiah speaks during a season when Israel had been cut down. 
there had been what's considered a great deforestation, a devastation by the Assyrian army, which left God's people metaphorically as just stumps. They once were a forest, and now it's all been cut down. But in our reading today, we're told that out of one of these stumps, the tree of the family of Jesse, the same tree that produced King David, will come a new ruler. A sprout will grow from the stump, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Well, above everything, well, in addition to everything, this is a deep reminder to us that whatever devastation you've faced in your life, I've faced in my life, no matter what deforestation we've experienced, that God is still at work in the midst of the stumps. And it says that his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear. So when it says his delight will be in the delight of the Lord, the word for delight in Hebrew is the same as to smell. Okay, that's the same kind of word. The image gives us this sense that the king will sniff out what is right in the world. That this new king will be able to tell those places that just by looking at them or even listening for them, you can't tell what's right. The king will be able to step in and sniff it out. In a world of fake news, this guy will cut through the BS. That's what it's saying. Some friends of mine once told me a story where they were um, they're priests and they were asked by a parishioner to perform a crop blessing. All right. Now, we don't do those very much today because we don't have a whole lot of farmers and agriculture has been a different situation than it used to be. And so crop blessings are not performed as often as they used to be. But in a traditional crop blessing, a priest prays a blessing over a person's crop and also by extension their livelihood, praying that God will continue to sustain them and sustain the world by their crops, okay? So the priest was like, okay, yeah, we could do this, um, but I'm curious about what kind of crop I would be blessing. And so they sought clarification. Sure, what kind of crops are we blessing? And after a little more prodding, they found that the crop was, in fact, medical marijuana, which um, was interesting and was like, what is a priest to do in such a situation? They chose to bless the weed. So they did. However, after they were finished blessing it, they noticed that along with the blessing came a smell on their clothing. (laughs) that they carried with them wherever they went. Now, this would ordinarily not cause a problem, except for my priest friend's next appointment was to serve communion to a different parishioner who had been homebound and unable to make it to church the previous Sunday. So they're trying to figure out, what do we do? We are carrying this smell on us that is a very obvious, very distinct smell, and now we're going to go to another parishioner's home. So they decided to call them and explain to the parishioner what was going on. So when that smell came into their house, they knew exactly what was happening. Now, we think about, in our culture, the sense of smell has been downgraded. So in a court of law, someone is more likely to believe you if you saw something than if you smelled something. If somebody comes in and says, hey, I, I know that guy did it. Well, how'd you know you did it? Did you see him do it? No, but I smell something fishy. No, that, that's not going to really work. Because in our culture, the sense of smell has down, downgraded. But in the ancient world, smell was a significant way of telling what is going on. There was an idea of the smell of evil that was and still is a thing in some cultures. Now, we live in a world, I want to suggest, of a variety of scents. Whenever we have company over to our house, one of the first things I want to do is make sure the house smells okay, like get an outsider to come in and make sure everything is right because I'm accustomed to it. I live here. I don't know any different. 
We get used to certain scents, certain, we could say, stories and patterns that get ingrained in us, and we become used to them. Some of the scents that surround us in our world are not good, but we're not aware of them because we've become accustomed to them. The point here is that when Jesus comes, he will smell clearly what is right and what is wrong. In a murky, musty world, we can trust that, that he will sniff it out. Righteousness will be the belt, it says, around his waist, and faithfulness will be around um, his loins. He will wear what is right and just. Now, this regime change, this change that happens, won't happen without tumult. We're told he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Says everything that is against peace will be wiped out. Yet, notice this, the war will be different from other wars. Why? Those who are usually on the underside of such things, who suffer in the midst of war, will be lifted up, the poor and the needy. And he will use different weapons from those of the world. It's so interesting, this is a side thing, but it's so interesting, some of the language that we use in Scripture, some people get really nervous about some of the language we use, and so we often want to change the language and say that language is too harsh. But sometimes what the language does is it actually reveals that this is totally different from what we expect when we use that word. Let me give you an example. A couple weeks ago was Christ the King Sunday, and I have some friends that are like, hey, we're not going to talk about Christ the King because that's King is inherently oppressive. So we're not going to talk about that. We're going to change the language. We're going to do something completely different. And I get that impulse because people don't like that kind of idea. It brings up all kinds of things. But if we think about, if we use this idea of Christ the King, and we recognize that actually Christ's kingship is so different from any other kind of king that we've experienced, that when we use the word king, we're actually redefining it. We're changing it in a completely different way. Well, that's true also, I think, when it comes to this kind of language. When we say, yes, Christ is bringing a battle. There's even some war language here. But notice the weapons that he uses. The weapons are his word, right? He speaks. He conquers with his word and his breath or his spirit. So as God's people, we become signs of this new regime, this new way of living. Um, Fleming Rutledge says this, when Christians are baptized... They're welcomed into the army of witnesses that God is creating to stand against Satan until Christ comes again. That is part of our baptismal vow. Whenever a child or a person is baptized, a piece of Satan's territory is being reclaimed. Did you ever think about that? She says, if you've been baptized, you are a beachhead for God. He has cleared a portion of the enemy's territory and has put you into it. You yourself are part of God's new creation. So as Christians, we shouldn't be satisfied with the way things are in the world. The rule and reign of Jesus is radical when compared to the regimes of the world. And then we see here this image in Isaiah of the way things could be different, that people could live together in harmony, that even Isaiah says predator and prey, the wolf and the lamb, the snake and the baby. That's crazy talk. The prophet says everything you know will be turned upside down and there will be peace. Now, if Jesus is the sprout, God's people represent the new garden, the people of the sprout. You've heard me tell this before, but in the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, each church building is enveloped by a forest. I think this is just incredible. 
And it's been this way for a thousand years, that you have a church in the middle and then you have a forest surrounding it. The forest is like the clothing for the church. And it's supposed to resemble the Garden of Eden. That's what each church is supposed to be. So all over the Ethiopian highland, when you fly over it, you see all these little, right now they look like little forests, just pocket of forest everywhere. And in the center of the forest is the church. The church has then become the safeguard and strength and strength and protector of these forests. So they cultivate and they care for these forests that are surrounding them. And over the centuries now, what we've seen as most of the world is the entire Ethiopian highland has become deforested, right? All this stuff has been cut down. It used to be 45% forest 100 years ago, and now the Ethiopian highland is 5% forest. And now these church forests are the only forests that really remain. They're the only ones there. Lately, as this deforestation has continued, the churches have begun putting up barriers, fences, on the outside of the forest to say, no, it doesn't go any farther than this. The deforestation can't go any further. The exploitation can't go any further. The church forests have now become a safeguard of biodiversity in Ethiopia. The churches have. They're responsible for the biodiversity in Ethiopia. Can you believe that? I mean, it's so foreign to us, but it's beautiful. And these church forests will in the future have to become the seedbed from which the ecosystem will be able to grow again. This is the image of who the church is called to be. We are a forest people, a garden people, the mighty oaks. We live by a different kingdom, and in doing so, the church becomes life for the world. In our New Testament reading, Paul challenges the church with the reality that God will lead them into harmony with one another. It says, welcome one another, therefore, just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Okay, great. Welcome, hospitality. We know that that's part of our faith. But why during Advent? Well, if we believe that God's new world includes all nations, that it includes the true healing of divisions, it means that Christians are called to live that way here and now that we are a people of welcome. We're an open-handed people. And this is actually pretty radical in the world in which we find ourselves. We don't live in a really welcoming world, necessarily. Now, there's a big difference between welcome and tolerance. Tolerance is often seen as the highest virtue in our culture, okay? That if we tolerate one another, then that's really kind of the goal. But if you think about it, how does it feel to be tolerated by someone else? I don't know that I really necessarily want that. (laughs) That's not the goal, is to be tolerated. Stanley Hauerwas says that in a world with diverse religious perspectives, we don't need to be tolerant, we need to be humble. If we just take tolerance, we we might even say, I believe Jesus is Lord, but but that's not my, I, I don't really worry about you too much. That's just kind of my opinion. That's... Well, that's an odd way of speaking. Jesus is Lord over the whole world, but you shouldn't worry too much about it. No, no. But what he says, what Hauerwas says, is we need humility. Humility is different. Christians are invited to be humble because we worship a crucified Savior. So we can invite difference. We can invite challenge. And we don't have to lay down what we believe in order to do so. Why? Because we're welcoming, not just tolerant. Humility is our story. The God who emptied himself. If Christians are not welcoming, our faith doesn't even make sense anymore. Because that's what our whole faith is about. 
And this means that Christian belief in the resurrection, Christian belief in a new world, ought to show forth in our welcome. But we have to say the elephant in the room, too. This is not often the case in the church, either in how we treat the world or even in how we respond to others within the church. And Paul's situation is actually within the church, the bringing together of Jews and Gentiles. And if you read the New Testament, like running in the background of the entire New Testament is this conflict between Jews and Gentiles. It's there all over the place. We don't talk about it nearly enough, but it's really the the operating system, the software that runs in the background of the entire New Testament. The question is, how do we, with all of our different cultural baggage, live in community with one another? That was the question between Jews and Gentiles who were Christians living in the early church. And often the question was even more basic than that. Paul is asking, how do we just eat together? Just have a meal together. Paul is not calling them all to be the same. He's not calling them to just tolerate each other. He's calling them all to be different, but under the lordship of Christ. Just as wolves and lambs are brought together in Isaiah, Jews and Gentiles are brought together here. The unity of the church within the body of Christ is a sign of God's new world. So when we come together, when we choose unity by the power of the Spirit, it actually becomes a sign of God's intention for the whole world, the whole world becoming one. Again, this doesn't mean we shuffle aside difference or that everything that we do, every way we do things, is equally appropriate or beneficial to the next. No. Christians are not about just finding the lowest common denominator. But we worship together in such a way that points to the one true and living God, who is the Father of Jesus Christ, and as Paul says, to have one mind and one voice. The church is to be a model for the new world that's promised in Isaiah 11. So in the church, we're not bound together by affinity. We all like the same things. By culture, by politics, by ethnicity. We're bound together by the one who is Lord of all. Unfortunately, we've not been doing a very good job of this in most places. So how might we seek, we, Sacrament Church, this expression, this garden of the resurrection, to be a people of welcome in our place? The welcome with which Christians, Jew and Gentile, are to give to one another comes from somewhere. Its foundation is in the risen, in the story of the risen Christ. Paul says that Christ became a servant to the circumcised in showing that God is true. He's faithful to his promises, the circumcised being the Jewish people. But the point of these promises was not just so that Israel could be superior to all other nations. The point was that through Israel, God would bless all nations inviting them into the family of God and the worship of God. And all of this has been accomplished in Christ. Paul then continues, he just piles, he tends to do this. He just piles on, hey, here's a part of the Old Testament that says that same thing I just said. Here's another part of the Old Testament that says that same thing that I just said. And he piles them up uh, on top of each other. And then the last one is Isaiah 11.10, which was our Old Testament reading this week about the root of Jesse. And the translation of the Old Testament, which Paul uses, employs a word for spring up. So remember, we talked about the shoot that will spring up out of the root of Jesse. Well, the word for spring up in Paul's translation is a word he uses for Jesus's resurrection. So he says, indeed, a root has sprung up from the tree of Jesse. Christ is risen. 
And because of this, he is the hope, not only of God's people as they're currently constituted, he is the hope of the nations. He is the hope of the whole world. We are called as a people of welcome, but it's ultimately not our efforts which accomplish God's purposes. It's not just about, hey guys, let's just be more nice. Let's be more hospitable. No, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are invited into something that God is already doing. In our gospel reading, we first meet this person, John the Baptist. And Matthew takes Isaiah's prophecy about a voice calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, and he attributes it to John the Baptist. John is the one preparing and pointing to God's promised future. This message has been part of the consciousness of God's people since Isaiah first said it, but here it's coming true in John. John ate locusts and honey, which is an interesting fact that Matthew just thinks we should know. Um, I, I think, you know, about, I've often wondered if there will be a day where I will go into a Nashville trendy restaurant and on the menu will actually be locusts and honey. Like, I, I've wondered that at some point because there's some unique combinations. I've had green eggs and ham at a restaurant before. I've had all kinds of different unique combinations. But that's what Paul ate, and it was kind of defining him as he's a wandering prophet. That's what wandering wilderness prophets would do. John's call is one of judgment, but remember, judgment is good news. It's harsh news, but it's good news. Like the words of a good king who has ended oppressive rule and is bringing about justice. Like a physician who knows the source of our sickness and has a treatment plan. Like the new day, which marks the end of a difficult night. Judgment certainly reveals our sin, but it does so in order to heal us. John emerges from the desert with the calling, make way. And in the ancient world, when a king or an emperor said he was coming into a village, the people would give everything they had to prepare for his arrival. There weren't that many roads at this time. And so they would make a road for the king so that the king would be welcomed. And their entire mission would be for that road to be made for the king. John's entire mission was to prepare the way for the king. He is making a road. He is making a path and he's sacrificing himself to do so. In this way, John is really the example for all Christian ministry. He had one job, point to Jesus. That's it. The reading says that John was baptizing people. What does that mean? Well, John's baptism was different from Christian baptism that we experience today in light of the resurrection. John is inviting people, we think, into a kind of ritual washing, a way of reminding a person or immersing a person into their story as the people of God. Remember, God's people were the Red Sea crossing people. They, they walked through the waters and to the other side, and that defined them as the people of God. So John is saying, you need to go through the waters again. You need to be reminded of who you are as the people of God and your story. But then we're told some of the Jewish leaders came forward and wanted to be baptized. John wasn't about that. He rebuked them, and he called them, you brood of vipers. Fleming Rutledge says, I've said this before, but says that it would be a great thing in an advent calendar instead of opening up the first day and it's a piece of chocolate and a nice inspirational scripture, if it was John the Baptist who would pop out and yell, you brood of vipers. That would kind of change our advent celebration, wouldn't it? Why does he call them that? He's rebuking them because of their pride. They believe they're already part of the kingdom of God. That because of their genetic lineage, they don't need to repent. But John says they're not ready. They're corrupt. 
They've kept people outside the community through their stringent interpretation of the law. God's new community embodies welcome. There's that theme again. God's community anticipates the harmony of God's new world. You can't live in a kingdom of welcome and justice through separation and violence. You can't do it. John is saying, don't cling to the fact that this story is part of your DNA or in your bones, that it's part of your family story, because if God wanted to, he could raise up stones and call them his family. Rather, the Pharisees, John says, must produce fruit worthy of repentance. So the church becomes a people of the sprout. He tells these these, uh, Pharisees and Sadducees that in order for God's story to transform them, they need to produce fruit of that repentance, that they must allow God to change them and allow their life to show it. And of course, the first step is just admitting their own brokenness. But it doesn't end there. We're not to depend on our own ability to change, on our own ability even to repent. The good news is something's coming. There's a new kingdom approaching, and we need that. We need someone from outside. We need the new king to set us right. And then John employs two intense metaphors. The axe is about to hit the root of the tree, and the fire is about to come and burn away the chaff. In other words, be ready for God's new kingdom. Orient yourself towards the true character and nature of God because that's the only thing that will last. Anything else in your life that is not of God is going to be chopped down and burned away. Merry Christmas. All is calm, all is bright. For us, we might ask ourselves, why does God need to say things and John say things so harshly? Well, we we should probably think about it this way. Those of us with power, or influence in our culture, enough money to get by, we tend to prefer things to happen in an orderly fashion. (laughs) We want the king to come and give us advance notice, be very clear about intentions so that we can make subtle and kind of subtle and institutional change over time, right? But those who find themselves on the underside of power, who've experienced oppression over and over again, are ready for an overthrowing kingdom. Bring on the axes and chop it down at the root. The beauty of Advent is our God is so merciful, so loving, that he splashes cold water in our face. He wakes us up. He says the stories you're believing are not true. They're fake news. Thinking that money is the answer is not going to do it. Thinking that people getting, you, getting people to like you is the ticket, nah, that's all going to be burned away. It's not going to work anymore. Our readings beckon us to ask ourselves what parts of our lives and what parts of our world are yet to be transformed by grace. What are the things that are not bearing the fruit of repentance, which are still in darkness and have not hit the light? We need someone who will put things in order, who can sniff out righteousness. We need God's reign where the poor are uplifted and previously warring factions can sit together. But this won't come by smoothly like a nice cup of chamomile tea. We are shaken awake by Isaiah's images of God striking the earth and wiping out the wicked. Yet God does not bring about this change by the weapons of the world. It is his word and his breath. Because in his kingdom, everything's different and all of our expectations are upended. Even the animals which we consider predators and prey will lie down together. If this is really what God's kingdom looks like, 
we're called to live it here and now. A shoot has sprung up, has resurrected from the stump of Jesse. New life has broken through that which has been devastated. Christ has risen from the dead. Where have we allowed cultural differences, hostilities, and prejudice to separate us from others? Where have we been slow to forgive? The king is coming. And this is the thread running through all of our readings, through our gospel reading. John is the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Christ's kingship is not a simple add-on that we tack on to our ordinary American lives. To embrace the coming king requires a whole new orientation, repentance, a change of mind. It's a political word, repentance, meaning the whole new way of seeing the world. C.S. Lewis said, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Today, God is calling us to give up. We give up our morality and our badges that we think we wear in order to get us in. We give up our false idols, our counterfeit gods, narratives which purport to tell us how the world works. The light is growing this Advent. The way is being prepared. The paths are straightening. May we greet with joy the coming of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Amen.